This is Archive Atlanta, episode 49, African-American Newspapers. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So today is September 6, 2019, and that makes it exactly one year ago that I launched this podcast project. It has been a labor of love. It has changed my life for the better. I have made friends, discovered amazing stories about Atlanta, and most importantly, I've learned more than I ever thought was possible. When I first started, I worried that I would run out of topics, but let me tell you, the list is so long, I am overwhelmed by what I want to share. So before getting into this week's episode, I just want to say thank you to those that have listened from the beginning or those whose first episode is today. I am equally grateful to each and every one of you for spending your most precious commodity, your time, listening to me speak. This week we have a story about African American newspapers, but it's so much more than paper and words. Behind each publication was a man with an agenda, with strong beliefs, and usually a strong personality. By learning about black newspapers, we can learn about fascinating Atlantans. Throw in stories of editors being run out of the city and unsolved murders, and this is an episode you don't want to miss. In these modern times, the printed newspaper is a dying breed. It's hard to imagine a time when a newspaper was your only source of information. I've mentioned earlier all of the incredible people I've met this past year, but today I want to shout out to Jessica in particular. She's a real historian, unlike me, and the few times we've met, she's been instrumental in helping me look at the bigger picture. Whether it be geography or infrastructure, all of it plays a part in the story. She also introduced me to newspaper archives and city directories, and sometimes I'm not sure whether I should be cursing her or thanking her. But most importantly, she taught me to look at news articles with a critical eye. These were written by people like you and I who were susceptible to the time period they lived in and the social norms and prejudice of their time. Questioning who these authors were what they wanted us to see, know, believe, and how they were speaking about a particular place and people. The first African-American newspaper in the United States was the Freedom's Journal, which was published in 1827 in New York City. Started by Reverend Peter Williams, John Russworm, and Samuel Cornish, it would set out to do what almost every black newspaper wanted to do, create a new narrative. White New York City press was anti-black and pro-slavery, and so a way to get out the African-American opinion and voice was crucial. The free black population in America at this time was about 300,000 people, so the Freedmen's Journal hopes to reach these people, but then also increase literacy rates as well. Down in the state of Georgia, a paper called The Colored American was launched in Augusta at the end of the Civil War. And although this one was black-owned, many publications were published by white Republicans. Remember, a Republican at this time is not the Republican you know today. The Colored American was actually purchased and renamed in 1866 by a white man named John Bryant and a black man named Simeon Beard. One of the largest and most popular newspapers in Georgia was the Savannah Tribune, which began in 1875. What I didn't realize until doing this research is that there were many black newspapers. We just don't have much information left to tell their story. 
At the turn of the 20th century, there are more black newspapers in Georgia, 23 to be exact, than any other state. 40 were launched in Atlanta between 1879 and 1947. Today, I'm going to focus on those that we know the most about, but large or small, every publication followed the same formula. They were mainly run as the mouthpiece of the owner, which you'll quickly notice were strong personalities, and they struggled with securing advertisements and financial backing. So that's why a lot of these papers, we don't have any physical legacy. We don't even have a copy of what they were. They were all created to tell another story, the story coming directly from African Americans. Protesting injustices, lynching, voting rights, but also having a place where black people were talked about in a respectful manner. White newspapers would not use proper titles like Mr. or Mrs., but in a publication for the black community, people could see themselves represented with honor. The words of the newspaper also gave the owners and the editors more freedom and a lot less constraints that many sort of regular black people had at the time in their daily lives. The first African-American-owned newspaper in Atlanta was the Weekly Defiance, sometimes listed as the Atlanta Defiance. William Pledger was a native of Fayette County, Georgia, and a former student of Atlanta University. He started the Athens Blade newspaper in 1879. Then he was editor of both The Reporter and The Age. Can we just take a moment to appreciate these early publication names? Because I think they're hilarious. In 1881, he starts a weekly publication called The Weekly Defiance. He was a very prominent Republican lawyer who, along with Henry Rucker, led an 1880 coup that took control of Georgia's Republican Party from former Confederate white leaders. He was ousted by white leadership just two years later, but he remained very active in politics. Pledger was described as militant in his demand for equal rights and a strong leader. Pledger was at times described as radical, um, but he was very much a supporter of Booker T. Washington, and his accommodationist strategies fell more in line again with the Bookerite view. In 1887, the paper's editor was listed as Alonzo Burnett, who also had political leanings. He ran for third ward councilman. The newspaper would end production in 1889, so it wasn't around for too long. Pledger dies in 1904, and he's buried in Athens, Georgia. The People's Advocate was short-lived, but it was started on my favorite street, Auburn Avenue. Then known as Wheat Street, Henry Hagler was a local printer and owner of a large bookstore. He began the People's Advocate in 1891, and it ran only until 1896, but he truly laid the path for newspapers to come. Henry was instrumental in founding the Negro Press Association of Georgia, and in 1891, it was big-time news for a black man to not only own one business, but more than one. He was critical of the Cotton States and International Exposition, as many black Atlantans were, and in an editorial in his paper, he wrote about fearing entering the buildings as a black man. And he expressed that people should only visit if they want to feel inferior to other American citizens, pay double fare, be insulted, and have their man or womanhood crushed. You tell him, Henry. The piece was republished nationwide. 
Another Auburn Avenue newspaper, the Atlanta Independent, was the first African-American-owned newspaper to reach national prominence. It was the brainchild of Benjamin Davis and funded with a subsidy from the Oddfellows, which was a fraternal organization kind of like the Masons. Born on a farm in rural Georgia in 1870, Benjamin Jefferson Davis attended Atlanta University and then worked in a print shop for a white newspaper man. He, like almost all the men I talk about today, was heavily involved in politics and the Republican Party. After being fired from a position in Athens, he moved to Atlanta to start a paper. Davis was dark-skinned, and he railed against the established, light-skinned, upper-middle class of Atlanta. So he kind of already stuck out, I think, in the elite crowd. Davis was a personality for sure. If it was 2019, he'd probably have his own reality show. He was the first black man in Atlanta to own a car, and he was not shy about expressing his opinions, although those opinions seemed to shift from editorial to editorial. At times, he was supportive of the poll tax, and he thought that African Americans should get out of politics, and then in the next breath, he would call for more black representation. He was supported by W.E.B. Du Bois, but he also had connections to Booker T. Washington. If it was possible to really tow the political line, I think Benjamin Davis was doing it. In 1903, the Atlanta Independent is published as a weekly newspaper, again financed by the fraternal order that Davis is a member of. In 1927, I.P. Reynolds is named city editor. I talked about I.P. in the Reynoldstown episode, which was uh, episode 8. But he has a column called Highlights of Auburn Avenue, and it just kind of talks about the daily going-ons of the street. Once the Oddfellows are unable to continue funding the Independent, the paper publishes its last issue in 1933. The closure of the Atlanta Independent led way for the birth of the Atlanta Daily World, which is the highlight of today's episode. But before we get there, I want to interject an incredible story I just could not pass up sharing. The Voice of the Negro was a monthly magazine, so it's not technically a newspaper, but its history is a great example of the politics and personality of the black publishing industry. Jesse Max Barber was born in South Carolina in 1878, and after graduating college in 1904, he moved to Atlanta to work for The Voice of the Negro. The magazine started in 1904 with a glowing endorsement from Booker T. Washington. He even sent Emmett Scott to Atlanta to be associate editor and make sure that the paper did not go against his views. This lasted all of two or three issues. Barber went rogue, uh, Scott resigned, so um, Jesse Barber would end up joining the Niagara Movement, which was associated with W.E.B. Du Bois and highly critical of Booker T. Washington. It began publishing pieces by Henry Hugh Proctor, John Hope from Atlanta University, and Du Bois, all vocally anti-Bookerites. Booker T. Washington was not happy. And he used his influence to get advertisers and pretty much all the other black press to completely ignore this magazine. Now, Barber retaliates by publishing a cartoon of Booker with his lips sealed by the white supremacy. But interestingly enough, that is not what forced Jesse out of Atlanta. It was his commentary after the 1906 race riot, shout out episode 19, that would earn him the ire of white Atlanta. He was bold and brave enough to write about white involvement in the riot and kind of blame it on angry white men. 
For that, he was threatened with time on the chain gang. He left Atlanta, and he was actually asked to leave Atlanta by kind of an elite African-American group. He would publish The Voice of the Negro from Chicago, but it went defunct in 1907, just one year after the riot. The last paper we're talking about today is the most well-known of Atlanta's black press, The Daily World. William Alexander Scott Sr. was a college-educated minister, and his wife, Nancy Emmeline Scott, also college-educated and a teacher. They owned a farm in Mississippi and had nine children, six of them sons. Together, the family operated a printing operation they started in 1900. Their mother, Emmeline, taught the printing trade to all of her kids, and their one son, William Alexander Scott II, would start his own operation in Atlanta. Now, William Alexander went by W.A. I think all the kids went by their initials. I don't know why. But W.A. was a student at Morehouse College. And while he was there, he paid his way by hiring students to sell hosiery and umbrellas. He was a member of the debate team. And the saying goes about him is that he could sell an Eskimo ice. At just 26 years old, he purchases a defunct printing plant and he founds the Atlanta World in 1928. Now, this was an Auburn Avenue family affair. Several siblings helped to operate the business and his mother, Emmeline, actually worked as a cashier until 1960. In 1929 and into the 1930s, almost all of the Bronner brothers of hair show fame worked as delivery boys. The World began first as a weekly publication, and he hired Frank Davis as editor in 1931. Frank was a Chicago newspaper man, an author, and a poet, and an activist. And it was during his tenure that the paper would go to semi-weekly, I think they went to three times a week, and then eventually in 1932, it would become the first black daily newspaper ever. Black newspaper circulation was at a high point in the 30s. So there's 228 black newspapers in the United States, and there's over 1.25 million copies of all the papers in circulation. In 1931, the Scott family founded the Southern Newspaper Syndicate. So this is a whole syndicate that they would print and then sometimes even provide content for African-American newspapers in over 50 different cities. In 1934, tragedy struck. W.A. Scott was shot and murdered outside of his home at the corner of Mosley Place and Chapel Road. Scott had been married three times previously, and he had just wed his fourth wife. Now, his new wife's brother was not keen on this. I mean, I can only imagine how taboo this was in the 1930s. And although this man was arrested and he was tried, He was acquitted, and the murder remains unsolved to date. While dying, W.A. asked his brother, Cornelius Adolphus Scott, or C.A., to take over the Atlanta Daily World. C.A. was also 26, the same age his brother started the Enterprise. Now here's where things get interesting. C.A. was a conservative, and he would begin to steer the paper towards a more conservative Republican leaning. This is not saying he didn't believe in working for equal rights. It's just he was definitely more Booker T. Washington than W.E.B. Du Bois. 
In the 1940s and 50s, the paper wrote against lynching. They were in favor of voting rights. Um, during the 60s civil rights movement, the Daily World definitely caught a lot of slack for not appearing supportive enough of the movement. CA believed that discrimination was better fought through courts than through public protest. He thought that kids out there getting arrested for sit-ins was harming them. It was taking the students out of class, out of learning, and putting them in jail. But it's important to remember, too, that it's very dangerous to be super vocal in the South at this time. Many stories of the Black press say that the most amount of information they were getting about the movement was coming out of northern cities like Chicago or New York because there was a freedom to speak freely there that did not directly impact people's lives and jobs the way that it did here. The Atlanta Daily World would operate under the Scott family until 2014. It is still in existence today. You can find it online, and I will put a link in the show notes for you guys. Because of the guarded stance of the Daily World, papers like the Atlanta Inquirer and the Atlanta Voice come out in 1960 and 1966, respectively. In terms of tangible physical places you can visit today, um, they're mainly on Auburn Avenue. So the Atlanta Independent was published out of the Oddfellows building, and the buildings themselves were the efforts of Benjamin Davis. So you can kind of see his legacy there in building form. The Atlanta Daily World lived in several buildings along Auburn Avenue as it grew and expanded, but its last home is also still visible today. It was damaged in 2008 um, by our world-famous tornado but it was purchased and then saved by developer Gene Kansas. If you want to pay your respects to any of these people, most of the Scott family is at Lincoln Cemetery and um, Mr. Davis is buried at Oakland. So there you have it, the story of Atlanta's African-American newspapers and newspaper men. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for your rating, comments, messages, and support over the last year. I am so excited to see what year two has in store. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week. 